Hey, this is Todd Burns from Red Bull Music Academy. Welcome to Couch Wisdom, Red Bull Radio's podcast presenting the best of RBMA's lecture archive. Ryuchi Sakamoto came to worldwide fame as a member of influential Japanese synth-pop outfit Yellow Magic Orchestra. Making abundant use of new synthesizers, samplers, and recording technology, they pioneered a new electro-pop sound in the 80s. Sakamoto has collaborated with many others since then, including David Byrne, Thomas Dolby, Iggy Pop, and Berlin-based electronic music artist Alvo Noto, also known as Karsten Nikolai. The pair met when Karsten was performing in Tokyo, and the introduction led to them working together and forming their own unique electronic sound, with Sakamoto's minimal piano complementing Nikolai's glowing digital tapestry. Consistently pushing boundaries in electronic music, these are two musicians who will always be ahead of the game. In their 2013 Red Bull Music Academy lecture, the unlikely duo discussed their respective musical backgrounds, their approach to collaboration, and more. If you want to learn more about the Academy, please stay tuned after the lecture. For now, enjoy this bit of Couch Wisdom. Both of you have been in the city quite a lot. Um, you have lived here, if I understand correctly. Do you feel the city sounds different when it rains? Yes. <laughs> yeah. What, when do you like the sound of the city the best? Well, I used to like the, uh, the radio communication in the taxi, uh, between the taxi driver and the, uh, the station. But nowadays, you know, they've been using uh, cell phones. So it's, you know, it's, it's not uh, very interesting uh, anymore. But it used to be, I, lo I love that, I loved that, yeah. Yeah, all the different languages that they used and... Languages also, but also, um, um, you know, the, uh, most of the times, it's been feeding, feeding back between the drivers and uh, station. So it sounds very, very kind of tropical <laughs> to me, because uh, a lot of uh, delays in between the between the conversations. And those create other new spaces for other sounds to get into, right? I have the feeling that Carsten, who, by the way, had a lecture here before that is very recommendable, you should go and look that up on the video. Um, you kind of like those spaces in between and when, when there's certain structures emerging that you don't really expect. Yeah, of course. I mean, <clears throat> I mean, New York is, uh, is a machine. Huh? The city is really a machine, especially because of the density and so on. And of course, you can always find moments where you think like, wow, it's what a great sound, what a great uh, mix of different things and uh, a subway or a ventilation or machinery going all night. Or I mean, all, there's always something, of course. That's, yeah. That reminds me that yeah, very unique sound of New York is um, the sound of air conditioning, AC. So probably, yeah, I actually, long time ago, I recorded it in a very late night, 
like two or three in the morning. Uh, just um, accidentally, my one of my friends was staying um, very close to uh, Times Square, so I went there and then opened the window and recorded the sound of the city. And of course, well, because it's um, um, early morning, it's less car traffic, and uh, you know, I found that the very unique characteristic sound is AC. <laughs> um, we had a blackout for almost two days, some years ago, right? And of course, the AC was all gone, and it was totally silent. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Now, your hometown of Tokyo actually has a lot of ACs as well. Do they sound different? American ACs are much louder. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, well, probably you know, the Japanese people are you know, very keen to minimize things, like um, TVs or cars or anything, minimize also. Um, they'll make things quieter. <laughs> so, he, even one of the Japanese ACs called, um, you know, quiet quietness or something. You know, they 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 love it. <laughs> I don't know why. Yeah, it's one of the things that visitors always strike about, especially Tokyo or other metropolitan Japanese areas. How there's this vast density and this vast technology and still you find anywhere you look a little place which is maybe five <clears throat> inches wide and there's a little tree growing there mm -hmm. and a little oasis of silence. Mm -hmm. Do you think so? I, I think each city is a little bit different. I mean, uh, I mean, especially when you talk about the difference between Japan and, and um, New York, Tokyo and New York. For instance, I was very surprised that uh, in Tokyo it was so quiet when I was uh, the first time in Tokyo in the morning, Sunday morning, it was so <coughs> really quiet. Uh, and uh, and I think in, I never remember any quiet day in New York. As, as, uh, yeah, I mean, it's never quiet. Berlin is very quiet too. Yeah, very quiet too. Yeah. 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 But you were not born in Berlin, right? No. no. Was Chemnitz even, even Karl Marx Stadt? Yeah, when you were born, it was still Karl Marx. Yeah. Yes, it's still Marx there. Yes, there. the center of the city. Yeah, from the former East Germany. Um, Is it uh, eight meter high? So I think it's uh, so huge. Uh, with, with the base, is a little bit higher than eight. Even. Mm. Yeah. Maybe, so, but yeah. something like that. Yeah. Yeah, the city was called after Karl, Mar Karl Marx. Um, <coughs> And uh, yeah, they, they just named it, uh, and now it's basically got the old name back. But I really love that I basically have in my passport a birthplace that doesn't exist anymore. It's quite interesting, I think. So you're a post-place person? <laughs> I don't know if I'm a post-place person, but, but I, I like the idea that... Uh, that if somebody would ask me what is what is what is this city and I say yeah it doesn't exist anymore the name yeah. yeah so what's the sound of that city that doesn't exist anymore what do you think about when you think back of them mm. 
I think uh, what I remember it was uh, probably, I mean, it's not really exci exciting for me, uh, uh, or it was not so exciting about the sound because probably I never gave it so much at attention. I think the first time I gave it attention when I was start traveling, that I realized every place is really different. Then you realize, okay, then you get aware of the differences of the places and so on. But uh, it's it's a quieter place. It's a smaller city, but it's an industrial city. It, so it was. Uh, I uh, I remember one very specific thing. And the other day we talked about it um, with my friend Olaf, where we were running the label with. We had uh, that we grow up in a pretty much still post World War Two situation, because every Wednesday at one o'clock. The sirens started going, like like uh, like like in war times. Actually, it was a test so in the uh, in the middle of the day. Wow! And uh, everybody uh, was sure. Okay, this is uh, this is the test at, at Wednesday at one. And but if it was not Wednesday one o'clock, you know it's okay. Something was really. Uh, but but this uh, to to grow up. I mean, it's probably something like when you grow up next to a church where the where the bell is going. But this was a part of our uh, routine, and uh, and uh, and somehow uh, maybe I, re I remember this very clearly. For instance, this is very clear sonic memory. Yeah. Was it very loud? Very loud. Very loud. Very loud. Wow. Yeah. The whole city. The whole city, and wow. it's not only one. It was maybe uh, three, four hundred all over the city going at the same time. Of course, they had all they all been different pitch. <laughs> so sonically it was very interesting, but uh, of, of course it was a bit scary too in the same time because you never know uh, is it is it one or is it maybe is it something something happen or whatever. I'm really curious because in <clears throat> Western Germany that same drill happened, but on a Saturday at one o'clock. Okay. So hmm, where yeah. But it was the same thing, and um, obviously yeah. a lot of the sirens were older. I wonder whether they had different pitches on purpose. Yeah, and I think we we grew up in basically the Cold War situation on different sides. So, so the 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 strategies to scare the people been so very similar. I guess so. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but um, that's the sound that you remember. What kind of music do you actually remember in Russia? <laughs> I think, as you mentioned, the taxi radio, for instance, uh, this is a story I really like uh, to tell. With, um, because when we grew up in East Germany, we had to, uh, in order to find the right radio station to listen to the right music, we always tuned in radio station from, let's say, from the UK or from, uh, from Western part of Germany. And depending uh, on uh, how strong the signal was, we could sometimes receive it or not. It was depending on weather, but it sometimes it was depending as well on uh, this, this frequency being blocked sometimes by military frequencies. And uh, I remember that you know, okay, this I just have to wait until they stop, and then the the the, the radio show will come up. And I remember sitting in front of the radio and listening to uh, number stations, I, I, maybe like somebody counting Russian numbers for two hours. And in a way, I, I have to say, I, after a while, I was thinking, oh, sweetie, what what is behind these numbers? 
So it's it's a kind of code, obviously. They're transmitting whatever right? you don't know. You're, you're making up your mind. And uh, I, I like that. And I, I think it left a little bit of trace of of the way how, for instance, you use voice in tracks or that this kind of certain language as code. Yeah. How long? How old were you? Yeah, this was basically from when you start listening radio 12, 13 to, to the end uh, of the, uh, until in the 90s, yeah, so it was still there. Yeah. I guess there's something about the musical quality of a foreign language that um, a lot of us experience, for example, when they start learning martial arts and they go and um, train for a kata in, in the karate lessons and then all of a sudden you really get into the rhythm of your teacher counting you in and it almost becomes a musical bit. How does that feel for when, when you learn? I mean, what was the first foreign language counting that you remember? Well, um, after the war in Japan, you know, probably well, as a kid, you know, uh, we listened to music from from the West more than uh, Japanese Japanese music. Maybe eighty percent of music we listened was uh, Western, or American, or European. So uh, we used to listen to uh, those music without understanding those languages, uh, what what it was sung. So it probably even now, you know, Japanese people are really used to listen to listen to music from, from the West you know, with, without understanding. So that means you know, they listen to music just as as a sound. Without without understanding the meaning. Um, when you, what was? Can you remember how your first, your first active memories of listening to music? Probably I was three, three years old, and um, the first music I, I loved was very. It's a bit embarrassing, but um, it's Mendelssohn's violin concerto. Why would you be embarrassed about that? Because it's, it's a very sentimental and romantic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but um, I guess we're all grown-ups. It's very all right. Probably, yes. Um, that was my very first memory. And how did you get in touch with that? Well, uh, one of my uh, uncles was, um, you know, the record collector. So I often visited his, his room and picked up some finals and uh, I liked it. Yeah. So that's probably parental advice for everyone at home that make sure you pick a good uncle or godfather that has a rec <laughs> record collection. Probably, yeah. Carsten, did you have a record collection in your family as well? Um, I think from my parents' side, was not much uh, happening from the music, but um, my brother and myself, we started a record collection. And um, and it's really, I think we've really been 
proud of every record we listen to and we uh, we've been very much very careful about the 15 records we had or something yeah how did you listen um I mean, the, the situation was, and uh, you, you could listen to classical music quite easily. Uh, you could listen to jazz music quite easy uh, in, at the time when we grew up. Uh, spe specifically, free jazz was a big movement, uh, and everything was, of course, coming from the West, uh, like like uh, more avant-garde stuff, and so on. You had to mostly to tape. But the, the, the yeah. authorities say uh, free free jazz as bourgeois music. No, they've been absolutely open about it. Actually, really? they really uh, gave it a big... Uh, there was a big scene, actually, yeah. East German scene, and there was a big exchange between the East and the West already in the, in the early 80s. And um, some of the artists from the East could even travel to the West. There was, was, uh, it was not uh, so hermetic as you would imagine it. Yeah, there's this strange thing that a lot of the great jazz musicians toured East Germany yeah. easier than the West because there was government funding for it. Yeah, and there was, for instance, a situation that Laurie Anderson was considered as jazz, and so she came to a jazz festival. <laughs> yes. And, uh, of course, this was totally like for us was the highlight, and we all went to this jazz festival to yeah, see her. I, I know she was your hero, heroine. Yeah, yeah, huh? yeah, yeah. But and I heard that... Yeah. The composer Ligeti, yeah. Um, at that time, you know, um, he was well. It, it was forbidden to um, write chromatically. So, uh, when he um, went abroad, I mean, uh, to the to to Berlin, uh, you know, he passionately wrote, um, you know, the music chromatically. That that became um, atmosphere in mm. his early work. So he, he was forbidden. Yeah, Ligeti, I mean, Ligeti is a little bit a strange case because Ligeti, the, 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 the fame of Ligeti came with 2001, more or less, like, through, yeah, but through that. But, but, but uh, we know Ligeti by this time. The country, Hungary, probably. Yeah, yeah. yeah because we, we traveled to Hungary mm. and we, we, bought, um, the, we bought records from Hungary a lot, from Poland. Yugoslavia a little bit, and uh, and each of the countries had a little bit a different release policy, mm -hmm. been a little bit right. more open in this way. Uh, like Yugoslavia was very open to pop records, for instance. Mm -hmm. uh, on the other hand, for instance, uh, the, the, there was a big Polish and Czech movement in electronic music, what we don't know yet. It was really big. Uh, everything electronically was very, very open, for instance, um, in, for in East Germany. I see. So even in the East, but yeah, each, each country has a was different a, situation. I, I remember I saw Tangerine Dream live two times in, in East Germany. And mm. they came to my city. Wow. Yeah. They toured. Yeah. But they're, they're not that chromatical. No. <laughs> no, no, that, sorry. This is a little bit different topic. Yeah, but, uh, yeah. for instance, Hungary was famous for... Uh, releasing for one of the only Steve Reich record, for instance, or and then they had uh, they had really weird avant-garde uh, composers from the let's say chromatic scale more coming and so on and uh, and there was a small record label from the East Eterna. They've been specifically interested in more the let's say 
modern modern classical music. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Now Japan was sitting in a very particular position in all this political climate. Were you able to buy YMO records? Of course not, no, no. But uh, we we know about them and we taped it. I mean, we're sitting in front of the radio and taped everything. And uh, or somebody had a record and then you borrowed your record, one of your fifteen records. You borrowed to him and then you borrowed one of. So, so you you there was a little distribution system existing. Yeah. Can you remember which YMO records you liked? Uh, I think you know the, the, the because I taped it. I don't have this visual memory of the covers anymore because you have everything on tape and sometimes only one track. Or but uh, I remember, yeah, of course the classics and and, and uh, yeah, and then the more the later stuff. What was more recent released when I was younger? I mean, YMO was for me already. I was already when I started listening. There have been a, quite a lot of YMO records already released. Uh, yeah. How about Kraftwerk? Did you, did you like Kraftwerk? I didn't time? like Kraftwerk in the you time. You didn't like it? No. Because it was too puppy for me. <laughs> <laughs> But you quite like them, right? <laughs> you quite like them. Yeah. What did you like about them? They were not too puppy for you. Uh, because um, <clears throat> when I found Kraftwerk, it was very early, like the I've, well, they were one of the German rock in the 70s. When they were still a rock band yes, before yes, Autobahn. Yes, yeah. long hair, um, handmade as, um, oscillators, well, etc. So they, they were next to like Noi and Khan. So I, I, and I didn't like Tangent Green so much, but, but Kraftwerk is much better. I, Noi was very, very strong. I think. Mm. So yeah, I, I liked it, Kraftwerk. Yeah, for me, Kraftwerk, for instance, I understood the first time when I was invited in Solar and they played there and then I was really seeing them for the first time live and then that, that changed everything. You became a fan. Absolutely. Mm. I was so... Uh, Even people told me, oh, it's not like in the old days, what you're going to see, forget about it. We're not going tonight to see the concert. And I was standing there and was like, fuck, this is, uh, this is a piece of art. I've never seen people being so, like visually was so well done, conceptually with the robots. And then I was thinking, wow, this is so strong. So I never experienced that impact of, of a life. And since then, I started going uh, to live shows again, actually, to see live things. <coughs> yeah. The Kraftwerk came to, came to Japan to perform first time in 1981. And three of us, YMO, went to see it. And we, we met four of them, four still original members of Kraftwerk, and uh, three, three from YMO. And we all went to a disco after the show. Um, Florian and Ralph started dancing on the floor. Yes, like that. <laughs> This kind of dancing. <laughs> German. German style. Yeah, German style. So that was um, 81. <clears throat> Then 
they had an um, eight-day or 12-day series of concerts at the MoMA, right, two years ago. Yeah. I went to see um, two of them, and I, I, I saw Ralph again, first time in 29 years. Did the dancing improve in the meantime? Well, we didn't, we didn't go to a disco this time, so <laughs> I didn't see his dancing. <laughs> and I mean, probably to give a context, because most of us were not born then, even. And um, I mean, some of us, but <clears throat> that's hard to gray. But um, you were not just anyone meeting them right there. I mean, if that was 81, that was after the big tour where you played the Budokan and all, right? Mm, yes. Would it be all right if we played like one or two minutes of the Budokan video? Yeah. Yeah? Hey there, at this point in the lecture, they played some music. Unfortunately, due to copyright reasons, we can't play that here. Yeah, I'm bummed too. Anyway, uh, enough from me. Let's go back to couch wisdom. I guess that deserves a little bit of a clap. <laughs> Now, um, people have been to various events in the past few days, including uh, an event called the United States of Bass. And when you just hear the opening bars of that song, um, especially in this city, this has resonated in a great deal. And um, genres like hip hop or a lot of the dance music that came later probably would not really exist with mm. that sort of stuff. When did you first realize that people are taking what you have done there and doing something else with it? I don't know. Um I guess first person uh, who covered uh, our music was actually Michael Jackson around that time. Um, so which song? <sighs> Behind the Mask. Um, so that track was going to um, on the on Thriller, Thriller album. But um, so we got them, we got them a letter from Michael's office, and they, it said um, we covered your song uh, behind the mask, and we're going to put uh, on a new album, and we need um, 100% percent of uh, uh, writer's share. It says it said, well. So we wanted to um, listen to what the music was like, and of course, in they, they said um, they said we we didn't we can we cannot ship we cannot bring it to you we cannot um, let you hear. So without listening, without hearing the music, you know, I, I cannot judge 100% percent of writers' share is uh, fair or not. So we refused it. Shoot. <laughs> If we said yes, you know, um, probably I would have um, ten, ten different houses in, the, in all over the world. <laughs> But I have somehow have the feeling you're doing all right. <laughs> Then the next one who covered, actually it's the same, same song, Behind the Mask, was uh, Eric Clapton. And... It's not well. It's a different way um, 
like the hip hip hop guys um, have used some elements from my uh, from our music. Um, also, um, actually, I met Africa Bambata in the eighties, and um, you know, he said uh, YMO and Kraftwerk were two biggest inspirations for you know uh, hip hop. Um, he was a big guy, but very, very shy, and um, <clears throat> he asked me to write down aut my autograph, anyway. <laughs> so probably he, he made some big connection between hip-hop culture and techno music, maybe. What, what do you think? <laughs> yeah, he might have had a hand or two in that, yes. Mm. Just so. Yeah, and um, I mean, there's some stuff that maybe we play at the very end when everyone's getting out. But um, what I found most fascinating when you look at the entire video, which you will obviously find online, is that knowing how much technology we these days buy um, from Japan, and especially the vintage stuff, hardly anything you see on there is actually Japanese. Mm. There's a lot of, you see Buchler systems, mm. you see Arabs. Mm -hmm. Um, what else is there? And uh, an Oberheim. A prophet. Yeah, sequential circuit. Yeah. So it's like uh, Oberheim, uh, Polywood, maybe. Mm. Yeah. So um, did the Japanese music industry, music instrument industry, not exist to that degree yet, or why were you more using these it kind of machines? Existed no other time, mm. of course. Yeah. We used we used the Roland uh, Micro Eight. Uh, MC8. MC8. Yeah. That was a very center of um, you know uh, creative music for us. But um, I think he also used the Korg sequencer, which is a Japanese company as well. Yes, Korg. Yeah. Then maybe um, few years later, uh, DX7 came out, yeah. and we really loved loved it. Yeah. And um, Vokoda mm -hmm. was also maybe a Korg or. Roland. The striking thing I found when you look at the setup as such is with the Cork and the MC8 that you have like two different sequences in the whole thing. Mm -hmm. So how did that work? How did you make all these different sequences gel as a band in talking to each other? Well, up until the second generation, MC4 came out, mm -hmm. actually MC8 didn't have a, a memory. Mm -hmm. So during the show, our programmer had to program next what well, next song mm -hmm. here and next one after that, mm -hmm. the second one. If um, if someone um, hit the hit the cable or something to turn off uh, turn off the MC eight, that's it. Concert over. Over. <laughs> so how many units did you then bring on the show? Well, we used two MC8, and probably we had uh, two as a backup. Mm. That's it. Carson, I mean, there's been companies like the VEB Vermona at the time, but um, can you remember when you recalled your first electronic instrument? I was not actually actively making music in, in the East German times. 
Um, I only know from my friends Olaf and Frank who had an electronic band. Um, and they, of course, uh, been very much interested to, for instance, get a, a C, a Commodore 64, this kind of thing, or in this time, this would be the... But it was simply uh, not affordable for us. For many, I mean, it was simply much too expensive. I mean, uh, you needed to put all your money away for the for at least three or four years in order to buy one of that instruments. So it was really kind of, by the time you maybe had the money collected, other instruments been available, and then you had, uh, but generally, uh, I think a few of these machines, I mean, Vermona was, but it, I think it was a drum machine from Vermona existing. There was some, it's uh, some synths, or but not super exciting, let's say, the, for us. Yeah, so. What what did excite you? <clears throat> I mean, what what we made music with was very very basic equipment. Uh, let's say, for instance, what I got much more excited was to play with uh, cassette loops, building little tape loops, or or and this, that was very easy and affordable. And uh, taking radio, radio shortwave signals as signal producer, for instance, what I still do until today was a great inspiration or something. So uh, you you had already some like the radio and the tape, the same equipment what we recorded with music we used as well to start making music with. Yeah. So this was to. A very simple, basic way of sketching things out. Yeah. And what of those techniques do you still apply when you do stuff today? Yeah, sure, sure. The the idea of the loops, for instance, was a very driving force for me for a long time. Did you do that with two tape decks, or physically were cutting the tape? In the beginning, I was really making my own cassettes, and then uh, like only cassette I used, I not even had the big loops or something running. And then uh, later, um, and in the moment the computer came, of course you did it with the computer, but uh, uh, there was a sampler in between, like when the first, yeah, when we could afford a sampler. Yeah. Your job at the time was being a gardener before you studied, right? I worked as a gardener for yeah. one year, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And then you studied what? Architecture, specialized landscape design. Yeah. Now. Obviously, this, if you look at the way someone can construct music, there can be some sort of parallel, right? Yeah, I think so. I think the way how I started making music was very architecturally, I would say. I was not so much interested, for instance, in uh, melodies or was more like really, let's say, was... I was not interested in the facade of the building. I was rather in the construction, like the, the. I was much more interested in the rhythmic parts of a track rather than the writing a song or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You're not like you agree a lot. <laughs> well, that's um, the most interesting part of uh, this collaboration because. Uh, we had uh, such a different backgrounds, you know, I'm, you know, fully uh, classically 
trained since I was a kid, and um, he's not. Um, he his thinking of um, creating music is more, much more to me, more mathematical, and based on numbers. Doesn't have to be Russian number, but. Uh, <laughs> um, But one could argue that classical music is very numerical and logical as well. Yeah, yeah, in a way. But we had, in the be like there was, for instance, in the beginning, I was everything calculating because I worked with loops in milliseconds. <laughs> and uh, I didn't know what kind of bar system I'm using. And then Richie came out, I said, so this is a 5-4. I said, okay. So I didn't know what, okay, and uh, so I, I really, basically then what you learn is that there's a notation system, there's the classical notation system, what I was, is a language, what I was not aware of, and I basically, when Richie talked about, the, okay, this is an A, and I was saying, yeah, this is 220 hertz, actually, you know, I mean... <laughs> And then I was, because we talk about the same thing, but, yes. but uh, there was a problem of translation. Yeah, lost in translation. Yeah, lost yeah. in translation. <laughs> yeah, I'm much more uh, traditional in, in that sense. But also, um, because I'm very classically trained, um, but um, my Curiosity is so huge, and um, I always want to um, forget what I have learned. So that's why well, I, I got like uh, um, his music and uh, new kind of music. So uh, it's it's to, to me it's very inspiring um, to look at how how he creates. Music and how he designs sound and music. <coughs> But that's a very tricky situation because with that curiosity, you um, learned a lot about very different cultures, very different types of music. So there's a lot to forget for you as well, like all the time. Like, how do you manage that process? I have to forget a lot. But um, I'm, I'm good at that. <laughs> yeah. Now, like with every couple, there's the question, how did you two, the two of you meet, actually? It was um, probably the late 90s, 98 or 99, uh, probably when you had, um, you had um, a performance, first yeah. time, first performance <coughs> in Tokyo. For my first performance in Tokyo. Yeah. Um, actually, Ryoji Ikeda introduced us. Yeah, uh -huh. who is a really brilliant both visual and sound artist yeah. as well. Yeah, he was on this day performing with me, and then Ryoji came to me after the concert. Because um, we became, we met as well, and we became became really good friends. Because I was pushing the sound guys to put a bigger PA inside, and I, and he really loved that that I was so hard fighting for the bigger PA. <laughs> And so we became kind of good friends, and then I said after the show, hey, you have time, come with me. And then uh, I wanted to introduce you to some of my friends. And then that's how we met. Yeah. But that was like three or four years before your first actual 
yeah. release at least. Yeah, so yeah, at least. what happened in the four years of dating then? Well, yeah, around that time, you know, I was on a totally different project. Um, it's um, in cover, um, covering music of Antonio Carlos Jobim with the Brazilian musicians. We actually went went to into went into uh, Jobim's house in Rio de Janeiro, and we even used his own piano to record. And we covered um, <clears throat> some, you know, his music. And then uh, we wanted to make a remix, and I asked him to remix one of our tracks. So he remixed Jobin's music, Bossa Nova music. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was it was strange and. The Brazilians didn't like it, and I loved it. So, <laughs> let me just see, because um, oh, then again, it might not be too instrumental for what we're talking about now. But we could have played some. Um, okay, what was the first bit that you actually worked together on? I think around the same time I did a remix. Ruchi was sending me a lot of material. I think you sent me like one hour of. Material Pian, like, piano improvisation. Yeah, not only there was a little piano piece yeah. inside too, but a lot of electronic. And then I really picked only the piano, mm-hmm. and I made. I think it's one of the first tracks what I released later on the first album, and I sent back, and Ruji was saying, "Oh, nice! Here's another sketch," <laughs> and then I sent this back too. After a while, oh yeah. I sent you another sketch. <laughs> and then I think on some point I realized, okay, this is like one hour, like it's not like it's 40, 50 minutes of music done already. So, But I simply was too shy to ask what, what can we do with this kind of... So I, was, I not wanted to... Impose. It, yeah, I was just waiting and was thinking, yeah. And then and then on some point... Uh, because we had a label, Raster Noto, and I was, I said, I have to ask now. <laughs> and I wrote <laughs> reached in the email, say, do you mind me putting this out? <laughs> and I said, yeah, of course. <laughs> and that's basically then, uh, yeah, that was maybe a, a process of two years, sending material back and forth, and there was a lot of time in between to listen to that, what we did. And so it was not, for me, it was not very new material, but it, it but I really enjoyed working with this kind of combination of uh, this very pure electronic music and this very beautiful, satiesque, simple piano. Shall we listen to some of that so people get a better idea? I, I need your subwoofers. I'm not really sure whether they qualify as hand luggage, but uh, yeah, but they can be fun and they sound even better when you sit over there. But the aircon fan is not part of the track, right? Yeah, it's a nice resonance. Yeah. So, um, if I understood it correctly, you sent sketches over, then you worked on it, but then you went to perform those as well. How do you communicate that process of how 
to perform this thing in a live environment. I think for the piano was really clear. I mean, uh, yeah. the, 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 the piano, Ruji is very specific about the piano and he has his own piano. There was one in London. So we used this one. But uh, uh, the other part was <clears throat> when I when I produced this kind of stuff, I was I had a lot of time basically, right? Like, and one of the main elements of this music was that I used always the like all these little parts you hear. This is always the, the decays of the piano fading out into the room, or I I loved to use the parts where. The piano was still there, but almost disappearing in the space. Like this being the samples I worked with, and there was another thing. Uh, from that decays, I always extended the sound with sine wave frequencies, but that they become kind of longer even. Like, uh, and um, I didn't know how to do that in life. It would be impossible because this was a very in the studio was a very long process to find a frequency, to calculate the frequencies. But uh, um, I worked with my studio and I have a brilliant programmer in the studio. We wrote a program doing this in real time then. And, uh, and this was already, let's say, and then most idea to even to sequence that in real time. There was a sequence as well. So I needed, for my part of sight, I needed to recreate the instruments who could do it in a live context. So, yeah. Well, my part is very easy. You know, I, I, I just need to learn what I impro improvised. You know, um, well, because uh, this music is all based on my improvisations <coughs> without any music. So it just uh, I have to remember what I played. That's it. Um, how much of that is actually pre-recorded, and how much does happen there? Because when you see the show, you actually communicate quite a lot with looking at each other, yeah. and it seems like you have your own little in jokes going on at times. I mean, yeah. I mean. <coughs> I mean, I, I, I use live Ableton, so uh, it's pretty easy to, to have little scenes, and then you de we have cues. We know the cues. Like, uh, I know, okay, this is the cue for this, and sometimes I had to I have to smile because Richie tries something totally in between out, and I think, oh, interesting. Uh, so it's, yeah, it's so. flexible. Each section can yeah. be flexible, you know? yeah. sometimes longer, sometimes shorter. Yeah. Depends on our f feeling. Yeah. I mean, there's a few songs we never perform the same, for instance. And there are some some songs what is made the most fun, I think, for us, where we don't have any, we just know approximately what it will be like, but it's always different, yeah. And you do control the visuals as well, right? Uh, not not anymore. We have now. In the beginning, I did in the first tour, but I realized that it's uh, basically a little bit too difficult to control the visuals and at the same time do the music. 
So now we have uh, we have somebody in the back controlling the visuals coming in, going out, and so on. And yeah. Oh, because that's something that's really striking for everyone that's mostly working in Ableton and like how to take that show and make it something more entertaining than just some person checking their emails and standing there with a laptop. I mean, Live Ableton is fantastic in the moment because of this extension with Max MSP. So you can basically add a lot of little missing details, what you sometimes miss or whatever. But uh, this is one thing, but the other thing is uh, I still have a little, little bit analog gear with me. Um, the, the visual connection actually, we have two driving forces. Uh, one is actually Ruchi's piano. And also MIDI. But what is, can basically give all the MIDI information he's playing. It's a synth clavier, it's a special piano, no, I think. Uh, so we're using that information, so whatever Ruji is playing on the piano gives information to the visual computer and as well to me sometimes. Uh, but um, I'm getting the sound in from Ruji, but in the same time the visual computer gets the sound in, so I can use it to process it, for instance, and the visual computer can analyze it and creating graphical patterns depending on each song. Yeah. Um, you said that you are really particular about your piano. What piano are you actually using? Uh, actually, my piano is uh, yeah, yeah, Yamaha. Mm -hmm. And how does that work in... This is one show where you have more than one piano on a stage. How does that work? It's not... Um, well, I sometimes use two pianos, but it, uh, not not for our collaboration. Not for a different show, but yeah. it's something where I guess everyone oh, in this okay. room that has seen it is like, well, how does it work? Well, uh, yes, I I have had um, some concerts with the two pianos, two MIDI pianos, and the one is programmed. Well, actually, I played it and you know, I fixed it, programmed. And then the the other one, the other piano I I just play live, so it's bas basically uh, played by both by by myself. But uh, um, so it's a kind of a self duo. But do you, um, do you program the sequences on the other piano beforehand, or beforehand, do you just of course. Uh, yeah, yeah. okay? And yeah, then you just but, but it's played. No, 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 the yeah. piano can actually record what you do. Mm -hmm. So I think you played it the piece. No, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. So it's yeah. like a uh, duet, but uh, you know, uh, I, because I know music, so I like a um, piano A, piano B. Like same same as a live live duo concert. I I I pre played uh, the second piano and I I played the the other piano live. That's it. Yeah. And can you control it from your main piano? Like, do you trigger certain sequences or? No, no. Okay, so it just runs and you yeah follow it. Okay. Of course, it could, it could, it's possible, but uh, it's possible, but... Uh, Have you ever, I mean, <clears throat> there's something about the power of a big acoustic instrument, like anyone who's ever seen, like, a Mahler symphony, 
and when you have eight upright basses, it's one of the most powerful things you probably have heard. Have you ever thought of extending that two piano show to a bigger thing? Actually, I once um, arranged one of my music for eight eight pianos, and I I really want wanted to realize that that music by you know just uh, lining eight pianos, eight midi pianos, but. Um, even Yamaha Japan didn't have um, that much of um, the midi pianos, <laughs> so we only we only could um, could get um, two or three midi pianos at the same time. Unfortunately, I see a light bulb. Yeah. <laughs> it could be could be gorgeous. No? We'll, I think we need to talk later. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we need to find the other five. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, probably for those of you who have not seen the show um, let's play probably a little bit of what it looks like including the visuals now I guess this piece works kind of differently because there's um, unlike in a lot of the others there's some historical context to it as well. And um, the way the human brain works, it tries to make sense of things. And you just hint at it very, very briefly, and then it's over again. It's like, um, I mean, our ADD generation is kind of used to that, but um, the people that really pay the big dollars for the concert tickets, how do they deal with it? Are they going like, come on, play the, play the damn song? Yes. Most of the people don't recognize in the beginning. I think it's in the beginning. Yeah, but it but takes a lot of time. Yeah. After they recognize what this is, um, of course they get frustrated. And some sometimes, like um, most like in Latin countries like Italy or Spain, you know, I I was sort of forced, you know, to to play the whole song. So you know, I didn't, but. Um, uh, I felt I felt a lot of pressure. Play it, play it, play it from the audience. So I, I was almost going to play the whole song, then uh, I stopped it, and that created more frustration. <laughs> so maybe just uh, play only fragments. That would be better. <laughs> you seem to enjoy quite enjoy frustrating the audience in that sense. <laughs> Mm, no, that's not my intention, but. <laughs> yeah. But um, I mean, nevertheless, for those who um, wondering, like, what are they on about? It's your first sound soundtrack scoring job that was hinted in there, right? Yes, very first soundtrack. Yes. Yeah. And the movie was called um, "Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence." Yes. And um, there's rumors you got that job because by that time you were more of a pop star but you got the job of actually doing the music by being pretty brave and courageous. Well, um, unfortunately, the director of this film, uh, Mr. Nagisa Oshima, passed away this, this year, early this year. But um, <clears throat> when I got this offer from him, you know, he asked me to act, act in the film first. So, of course, you know, um, in my mind, uh, I said yes, 
of course I, I would. But then before I literally said yes, you know, I got an idea and and said, let me do music. And he said, of course you can. Then then I said yes. <laughs> okay, I would do act, acting in, in your film. I don't know why I said that, but um, it worked. It did kind of well, judging from the amount of soundtrack work you got later, right? Mm. Oh. And um, seeing that that was your first experience of writing a soundtrack, of which you did so many more, um, what took longer, the actual acting or writing the music? Um, the writing music took longer. The whole shooting took only maybe two months. And I was lucky I got three months to, to make music. It's very unusual for for soundtrack composers to to have that long period of time to make to make music. Yeah, rumor has it that for another movie that you actually won the Oscar for, you did not have that much time, right? I had only two weeks, and that was after haggling with an Italian yes. who only wanted to give you how much time. Uh -huh. Well, I had two weeks, uh, one week in Tokyo to write, write music and record, and then I brought every, all the materials to London, which you know they had a production. Then uh, next day of my arrival, you know, I had to I had to go to Abbey Road to record the actual music. But um, you know, at that time in the eighties, we didn't have a um, you know, um, good communication between London and Tokyo. So um, when I arrived in London, the film film was edited differently. So the the, the music length didn't, wouldn't fit. So I, I had to rewrite in you know, overnight to prepare the recording for at the Abbey Road the next day. <laughs> and uh, I didn't have a well, we didn't have a. Um, computer to cal calculate, recalculate musical musical tempo and uh, the sequence, the the time sequence. So I ha I had to use my cal um, pocket Dentaku. Dentaku is a pocket calculator. You should have called Carsten. Yes. <laughs> Dentaku. Um. I somehow have the feeling that working with a Japanese director first and then with Bertolucci is a little different, maybe. Yes. Very different, very different. Yeah. Well, not only um, Mr. Oshima was Japanese, but um, he, he is that kind of film director, you know, who gave us uh, almost total freedom. So, um, he didn't give me any, any strict direction, direction or something. You know, just um, he let me do free, whatever. And um, during the three months of uh, recording, you know, he just showed up once and uh, listened to everything I got that time, and then he left. And no, no complaints or no, no fixes, no revisions or anything. But um, uh, working with an Italian 
film director was totally different. Um, so, first time I was at the Abbey Road in a very, very big room with the um, British string orchestra. And the first time Petrucci said, oh, where are the verses? Where are the verses? <clears throat> you know, that I got trumpets and trombones and horns. And I explained, well, we will have brasses tomorrow. You know, we will overdub brasses tomorrow. And we record strings first today. No, that's impossible. And he didn't uh, understand overdubbing at that time. And also he shouted, where's the big, big screen? Uh, in old days, you know, they, they had the musicians had a big screen in the studio, and um, you, you know that uh, three, two, one, and music starts. And uh, the conductor will uh, direct according to that uh, film, the, the signs on the film. Right? And the musicians had to react whatever they, the mood of the sequence. So uh, he shouted, so he um, intended to have the big, big screen in the studio for musicians to watch the film. So the one hour later, the big, big screen was brought to the studio, but obviously um, no, no, no musicians watched the film because uh, we had to click. So, so we, we didn't need the big screen. And, but he, he is happy. Of course, the Bertolucci was happy. Anyway. Well, scoring for film, I guess, is something a lot of people in here would love to do themselves at some stage. And um, I want to probably pick one scene and just assuming that most people would know the general theme, would like to know how what you did in order to fit it to a different screen. Oops. It's only one minute, so it's, I'll try to pick an example that's rather easy, and let's hope the syncing works better this time. Can you recall how you approached that? Because it's definitely one of the movie scenes where the soundtrack works very different than what you expect it to be, and it's, um, there's a really interesting friction of the visual content and what you hear, and how that works with the rest what you're doing in the movie. I don't know. I did. I didn't have uh, any theory or anything, any method. I just um, followed my instinct. Um, it's strange that you know if. But in a good way. I mean, it's yeah. <laughs> if I have to uh, make music now, uh, I would write totally different music, and it might not be good as good as this. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I don't know. It's, but it sounds like um, um, it. Um, it sounds like a copy and paste it to me. You know, it could be something else. Like it could be um, uh, some fragments of um, <coughs> pop music or something. But there's still hints of the theme in there, but just very lightly. Yes. Well, actually, um, 
Well, my intention was to uh, to create um, another story, different from the uh, the story we, we see in this film, but um, uh, an, another kind of or well, storytelling structure by music. So I, of course, I used um, the method of a light motif, Richard Wagner's light motif. So I I I wrote the, like the four different themes for the four different characters, and you know combined them. But that that's probably only, only method I used at the time. Was it different later to write for something where you're not one of the characters? Well, it's it's hard to say. Um, the main engine I, I I wrote this music was um, my acting mm -hmm. because it was so bad <laughs> so, uh, as I almost fell into the floor when I saw first time on my acting uh, and that's that's because uh, that's before I started making music so that was a the major the major engine <laughs> to write music. <laughs> Speaking of engines, I mean, this war has clearly a very strong humanitarian message as well. You seem to devote a lot of time of your work to that as well. Yeah. yeah. So um, you're active in, I take it, anti-nuclear? Yeah. It's like, um, do you do that aside from the music or do you try to combine them in a way? Well, um, like more than 10 years ago, um, I became very um, conscious about um, environmental issues. Then many people ask, ask me, um, why don't you make kind of eco music? Or how would it be possible to... <laughs> to write the eco music. And I've been thinking about eco music. And, you know, I, I cannot write eco music. It's, it's um, or it would be too new agey kind of music, which I don't like. Because like, uh, sometimes, you know, we, we go to, when we have to go to the dental clinic, you know, uh, they play kind of very, Cheesy, easy, um, eco music, and I, I hate it. So, so I, I can write eco kind of music, right? But um, my theory is um, there will be a kind of a eco conscious thrash metal band. You know, uh, they, they don't have to change their music, but uh, they can they can change the the source of the power. You know, from uh, fossil fuel to, um, you know, environmental um, renewable energy. So, I mean, it's a... People should probably get in, into bikes instead of the mosh pits and power the amps that way. Mm. And then, yeah. So, simply the music, music or culture and infrastructure are two different things to me. Um, we're, en 
actually getting some signals about being short on time, but um, what can people expect from what we will see tomorrow? I mean, the music <coughs> and the, the little video we saw, I mean, give you maybe a little impression, but it's, um, it's a very simple setup. It's basically piano, me, electronics, and we have a screen behind us which uh, will provide the visuals. It's not a big rock setup, or it's not so. Actually, it's called, it has very clear and easy to understand elements. Yeah, I found it always really interesting how the place determines your, especially your combined show. If you just think of the different places, it happened in Barcelona, for example, mm. when you play it in that open amphitheater, how different it is to that really beautiful hall as well. I mean, they're all good venues, but it's extremely different for you as a listener to take it in. How different is it for you to play there in these different environments? Yeah, some, I, I think one aspect is, of course, the connection to the audience. Like the, some venues are great. You really feel the audience and the audience can see you better and uh, the energy in the room is simply working really from the beginning. But for instance, we had one, on our last tour, we had one location where I, I never experienced something like that, uh, where I basically, I played a sound and I heard a different sound coming back. And I said, okay, can somebody please switch off this speaker sitting in the ceiling there? And I, said, uh, and I had a discussion for one hour. I said, there must be a speaker up there. Uh, and I said, no, there's nothing. There's nothing. And then we, we looked in the venue and we realized there was a very, like a decorative element of um, that the architect puts in some plexiglass, what was very specifically ordered in a circular, what bounced the sound back in such a weird way that it all was like, a, like, like a, sounding like a Mickey Mouse voice. When I was sending a bass drum out, it made like... Düsseldorf? Düsseldorf, yeah. Yeah, 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 this tunnel. And... Uh, I had a long discussion with the guys, with the PA, and uh, I was, I said, no, I don't believe you. This, it is, it, it's not acoustically. It's it, it, it something. It, it's something broken in your speakers. Some speakers broken. So, and... Uh, but actually, uh, that's short delay, delays, which could create yeah. that kind of sound. Right? Yeah. <laughs> the, the weird thing was that um, I, on stage, could hear that sound mm. on my position. Mm. Reaching not so much anymore. Anybody in the audience not. Only me. Mm. So you had a great time. <laughs> and I really had to laugh during the concerts yeah. because I held always this kind of Mickey Mouse imitation of my bass right. drum. <laughs> and then <laughs> a strange punishment. Yes. <laughs> well, I guess you did quite good for the first five albums, so we're really looking forward to the next ones. And um, But looking back for at least the last two hours, we'd like to thank you very much and please give it up for Herr Carsten Nikolai and Sakamoto Sama. Hey. 
Hey, this is Todd Burns again. Thanks for listening to Couch Wisdom. Before you go, I just wanted to take a moment to tell you a bit about the Red Bull Music Academy. The whole thing is a world-traveling series of music workshops and events. If you want to find out more, check us out at redbullmusicacademy.com. Also, if you liked what you heard on this podcast and you're not already subscribed, please go for it and consider rating us while you're at it. It really helps other people discover the podcast. Finally, there's a whole other world of great music programming like this to check out at redbullradio.com. Okay, enough URLs for now. Thanks for listening.